Welcome to Backstage at the Enharmonic. I'm your host, Sean J. Kennedy. Today's guest is Clayton Cameron. He's an American drum set artist who's most notably performed with Sammy Davis Jr. and Tony Bennett. His nickname is the Brushmaster. In drumming circles, he's most well known for his codification of how to play brushes on the drum set by developing brush rudiments and taking brush playing to the next level. I'm very happy that he took some time to talk with me today because he is truly one of my drumming heroes. I remember seeing him perform back in 1994 on MTV Unplugged with Tony Bennett. It was the first time I'd ever seen Clayton. And when he came out to do his drum solo and played the brushes, my whole approach to playing drums changed that evening. And then jumping ahead to 2010, I was out at the NAMM show in Anaheim, California, and I was there promoting my new book, Rock Solid Drums, which I co-wrote with my friend Liberty DeVito. Well, there was a, an event in the evening, and I happened to see Clayton. I'd never met the gentleman, and I, I saw him standing in a crowd at a concert, and I walked up to him to shake his hand and introduce myself, and I told him who I was. I said, hi, Clayton, I'm a huge fan of yours. Uh, my name is Sean Kennedy. And without dropping a beat, he looked at me and said, I know who you are. And my jaw probably hit the ground. Now, my guess was that he knew who I was because he happened to be standing with a bunch of folks from Carl Fisher, the company that publishes both of our books. But regardless of the reason that he recognized who I was, uh, it's a moment that you never forget when one of your heroes looks at you and says, yes, I know you. So here's my interview with Clayton Cameron. Hey, Clayton, are you there? I'm here. How you doing, Sean? Oh, great. I'm good, Clayton. I'm so glad to talk to you. Thanks for taking some time. Looking back, what's the earliest memory you have of music having an impact on you in some way? Uh, the earliest. Well, I had a next-door neighbor whose father, when I was growing up, I mean, I was, you know, around six or seven years of age. And uh, their dad was this um, upright bass player, and I used to see him go to work every night. And, uh, you know, take his bass, put it in the car, and then he'd go. I have no idea where he played or whatever, but I thought it was, you know, really cool. And then his, and then his son, uh, who was older than me, about five years, um, started a band. And I remember at that time I had been playing bongos. You know, I had been given a, a set of bongos by a next-door photographer who used them as props. And so that was my first instrument, a, a set of bongos, and I used to play them, like, every day, every freaking day. And, you know, you had to light the match to heat, you know, heat, heat up the skin to, you know, to tune them and all that. So, so, you know, I had that going on. And then I remember they had kind of like a Buddy Miles, Jimi Hendrix-style band and I remember hearing them, and then I also remember the drummer having his drums spread out on the front lawn, you know, like he's packing them up or something. And I was like, wow, how the hell does he even remember how to put all that stuff together? And I became fascinated with the drum set. And and so during that period, uh, another next-door neighbor who used to be a professional musician invited me over to his house to jam with him. And... Uh, he played congas, and then there was like a vibe player, and I sat underneath the vibe. I remember playing my bongos with these guys. And so that was like the first time I ever played with anybody. And his name was Lee Schamberger. He was like a next, he was a, another next-door neighbor who happened to be the father of, you know, one of my friends. 
So because of that, uh, Lee Schamberger ended up uh, telling my dad that I had some talent, and then after that, I ended up getting a drum set because uh, Lee Schamberger told my dad he should get him, you know, a set of drums. How old were you yeah. at that jam session? Yeah, that jam session, I was probably, by then, I was probably around eight years old, nine years old. Wow. Like that. had no idea what were, I was doing. <laughs> were either of your parents musical in any way? Did they play as a like, hobbyist or professionally or anything? Uh, no, other than high school, uh, a high school clarinetist, my mom, uh, and my mom, uh, that was it. My dad, he, you know, he was a big jazz fan and listener. And my mom, um, you know, she uh, used to play clarinet. That was that was it. There was no, nothing, you know, firsthand. You know, there was. Hmm. I think I had a uh, uh, my dad's uncle uh, who died when he was ninety-two. I think like for thirty years of his life played accordion, hmm. and that was it. <laughs> you know? Awesome. So that was that was it. Yeah. Did they have a lot of uh, LPs spinning, like with different styles, or was it mainly jazz as you were growing up? A lot of vocal jazz, you know, like Ray Charles, Nancy Wilson, um, you know, that, that sort of style. And the instrumental stuff, you know, my dad had a lot of Miles Davis, you know, Dizzy Gillespie, you know, Coltrane. You know, he had a lot of, the, you know, jazz from the 40s on up kind of thing, you know. But mm-hmm. big, you know, Diana Washington, you know, uh, fan, you know, so, you know, Nacking Cole, that sort of thing. So we had that kind of music around. But then also, you know, we had a lot of, uh, my dad had, you know, they had a record player that, you know, they finally let me use, and then I got my own. And then, you know, we had a lot of, you know, R&B, Motown, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So did you gravitate toward, more towards the Motown, or were you kind of open to everything as a young man? Well, what's interesting is when I started buying records, I was buying, you know, the first records I listened to were my dad. And so, uh, you know, when I heard first, the first record that I heard of Miles, I, you know, I never asked my dad if I could play his records, but one day he wasn't home, and I just thought the album cover was pretty interesting, and so I put it on, and it was uh, cooking with Miles Davis, you know. It was that record, and so then I read the liner notes and go, oh, then I tried to find everything with Tony Williams on it, then, you know, that led to, you know, back to Philly Joe Jones and Elvin Jones, you know, so it was kind of like a, it started with Tony Williams with Miles, you know, um, so I think it was Miles Smiles that I looked at that had Tony's name on it. Of course, mm-hmm. uh, cooking and whatnot, what you know, would have been Philly Joe and um, uh, back then and... Um, uh, who else am I thinking of? Um, anyway, I, I I'm going blank, but I'm, I'm mm-hmm. I I think I just kind of worked backwards, you know. So uh, okay. anyway, so that's kind of how it worked. Okay, great. Um, now, did you participate in any uh, school bands or anything in your, or did you just kind of play on your own at home or with friends? Well, once I started taking private lessons, my mom, you know, insisted that I take lessons, and so they sent me to. Um, a place not far from my home called Grant's Music Center, and so over there, uh, you know, I you know I started at twelve and I was playing my rudiments and all that, and so you know for a couple of years I was you know pretty much just doing my lessons, which kind of was more like snare drum and reading out of the different books, you know, 
and then I would listen to my record player, which I play would play like you know all the Motown and Sax records. I would do all that stuff, you know, at home. But then what happened was I, by the time I got to be you know around sixteen, uh, you know they had a rehearsal band at Grand Music Center, and so I used to hang around and just listen to the big band rehearse. And so then one day the big band, the, the guy that was playing drums, uh, didn't show up. And so they told me to play. So I got, you know, kind of like a baptism by fire playing with the big band under the direction of, um, ironically, one of the Motown uh, arrangers for Diana Ross and the Supremes and for the Temptations. His name is Gil Askey. And so Gil Askey was a jazz musician that um, uh, Barry Gordy heard, you know, some of his arrangements he was doing and said, hey, can you, you, you know, do that for me? but for the R&B. And so that's when uh, Gil Askey started working for Barry Gordy. So anyway, so I, I worked with Gil, you know, for many, many years, starting when I was 16 years of age, you know, playing with the big band. And, you know, and they were all older guys, and so I had a lot of, a lot of mentorship, you know. Uh, earlier, I, I got to digress. Earlier, I was trying to think of Jimmy Cobb. For some reason, Cobb was mm-hmm. not coming to mind, but I was thinking of Jimmy Cobb. Anyway, right. um, so... So anyway, so you know, so under the direction of Gil, who was not a drummer, he was a trumpet player and a ranger. I mean, he was probably one of the best teachers I ever had. You know, just to play music, not not so much the drums per se, but he couldn't teach me technique or anything like that. But but he really, you know, showed me how to you know set up the band and what I should be doing and all that. You know, so it was, I was pretty lucky because this was all outside of any organized you know high school band because we didn't have one. We didn't. We had uh, barely had a marching band where I went to school. Okay, wow. Did you participate in any of that stuff? Yeah, I, yeah, I did. Uh, you know, in LA we have the All City Marching Band, so I did that for you know three years, and uh, and I was in there. We, you know, we had some really great cats in there. I mean, James, the first year, James Bradley Jr. was uh, was in that band. Hmm. Uh, you know, of Chuck Mangione fame. He. Uh, you know, we were around the same age. He was about, about a year older, and uh, we were all in high school. So he was in all city marching bands and graduated and started playing with Chuck Mangione and that famous recording, you know, Feels So Good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were just all impressed. You're like, oh, man, James made it already, you know, that sort of thing. So, <laughs> yeah, so all city marching band was uh, was a great band. Got to play a couple of Super Bowls, you know, got to, wow. you, know, you know, do the Rose Parade every year. So that was uh, that was a fun band. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't core style or anything like that. It wasn't all that serious, you know. But it was just. Uh-huh. In fact, I wrote some of the cadences uh, when I was a junior. I wrote some of the cadences, and I think to this day I still hear part of one that I wrote. Really? Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's great. Yeah. Um, so most of the people that are going to be listening to this podcast, you know, they're going to probably associate your name with Tony Bennett and Sammy Davis Jr. and all the. Sure. Unbelievable names that you've played with. But since I'm going back to the beginning, before all of that and the big limelight and all that, was there a moment that you can think of where you're like, you know, you were coming up, this um, this kid who was drumming, and all of a sudden you were at some gig, and in the back of your mind you're like, yes, I've made it. I've made a huge step forward, and I, I could be consider myself a pro now. Like, do you have a moment like that that you can remember? Well, I think, you know, it wasn't all really that glamorous, 
But just the fact that after I graduated from college, you know, didn't know, didn't have a job, you know, trying to figure it out, you know, moved out of my parents' home, was staying at a buddy's house. And, uh, you know, then I got a call that said, hey, I'm, you know, there's a guy in Las Vegas that needs a drummer. He'll be working six days a week. Uh, you know, you have Mondays off or whatever it was. And uh, so then, you know, I said, sure, I'll do it. The guy called me, and I said, when do you need me? And he said, oh, I need you tonight. His name was Kirk, uh, Kirk Stewart. He was a great piano player. He used to work with um, um, with Sassy, and he's on the Live in Tiffany Gardens is the record. He sings a, sings a um, duet with her on, on Misty. Anyway, hmm. uh, with Sarah Vaughn. And so, so anyway, so... He was a great piano player and a great singer, but unfortunately he sounded just like Nat Cole, and, and people knew that, and so they would always request Nat King Cole tunes and all this, and he hated that. But anyway, <laughs> he gave me a call, and he said, when, you know, I said, what do you need? And he said, I need you tonight. I said, well, you know, I can't make it tonight, but I can be, you know, to Las Vegas tomorrow. So basically, I got the call, and the next night, I was, you know, starting the next night, I was working six nights a week. And I just felt like I was a working musician. You know, I had a gig. I had, you know, I had my own apartment. I was paying bills. I was getting credit. You know, it's like, okay, I'm working. Um, so, you know, it wasn't glamorous, but it was it was a job. You know, I had a job. So mm-hmm. I, that, that's what it, you know. So that's, uh, but if you ask me, you know, like when you felt like, you know, you really made it, um, I had a really funny feeling when um, I had, to, when I had the audition for Sammy Davis Jr., my audition was terrible. I wasn't great. Um, but they, you know, George Rose, the conductor, believed in me. And once I got the job, uh, they flew me. I mean, it, it was about a month after or two months after the audition, so I just figured I didn't have a job. And I finally got a call maybe two months later saying, hey, we're going to have a plane ticket for you to Minnesota to play with Sammy Davis Jr. So I was like, oh, okay. So I still didn't know whether I had the job or not. I guess, you know, they might be just trying me out on the job. So I had no idea. Mm-hmm. So I flew to Minnesota, and we were playing the Minnesota Fairgrounds uh, right next to the pig, the pig, piglet races. It was a stage. <laughs> and so, you know, I get there. I'm all nervous. I set up my drums. We, we run, and Sammy always performed with um, big band and strings. So we always had, you know, at least, 30 people on stage, you know, with 18 in the band and, you know, at least 20 strings. So, you know, probably like 38 people, really. And so, so anyway, so, you know, there's no real long rehearsal. There's a rehearsal of, you know, a couple of hours, but, you know, we couldn't possibly cover everything in that book. It was a very thick book. And Sammy J. Davis Jr. was not at the rehearsal. Um, so, you know, basically I'm doing the rehearsal without his vocal. And anybody that's ever done, you know, this kind of music where, or any kind of music that has vocal and you're doing without the vocal, you know, you're, you're, make, you're making the hits, you're, you know, you're swinging, you're doing the groove. But until that artist really comes out, you know, it, it's, it feels different. So Sammy mm-hmm. comes out that night and it was like killing. And I had to pinch myself and say, you know, you know, just, you know make sure you pay attention, turn the pages, you know, just don't get lost. Because, <laughs> really, we have, you know, don't get lost. And that was my minute, don't get lost. Don't get lost in the music. And so I was pretty successful at that. I didn't don't remember getting lost or anything like that. The gig was over. Sammy had all 13 people in his entourage, took us out to dinner. And um, I still hadn't met him. I still hadn't met Sammy. And so he goes to the front of the table and he clicks his, uh, you know, 
bangs a fork on the glass and says, you know, excuse me, everybody, everybody says, uh, you know, great show tonight. I want to welcome our new drummer. And he said, didn't say my name. He never said my name ever. I don't ever remember him saying Clayton. He said, I want to <laughs> welcome Big I want to welcome Big C. And he always called me Big C. And we always really? called him Yeah, we always called him Mr. D. We never called him Mr. Davis. We always called him Mr. D. So mm-hmm. uh, I was Big C and he was Mr. D. So and so that's when uh you know, I said, you know, I finally made it, if you will. Right. But my, my hero was Tony Williams, and at that time when I was getting with Tony with Eminem uh, Jr., I was 22, 23, and I was like, well, you know, big deal. Tony Williams was playing with Miles when he was 17, so, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> right. you know, so, so, but now, you know, at 57, I'm going, boy, you were really lucky, so, you know, but, you know, in the mind of a aspiring, you know, young man or woman, you know, you're really trying to do something, and you're practicing all those hours, and you have your goals and you have people that you look up to. And so that's what, that's your litmus test, you know. So Tony Williams was mine and I would, you know, I, I didn't live up to Tony Williams, but, you know, at least it was a, you know, you're shooting for the stars, you know. Did playing with Sammy all those years, uh, I, I'm sure this is a ridiculous question, but did it change your approach to playing? And it, how? If so, how? Oh, man, I learned so much on that gig. And I learned so much that I couldn't even possibly really uh, digest all of it. It's, it, you know, really. Mm-hmm. There's a video. There's a there's a video on YouTube with Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, uh, he's training force with Louis Belson, King Erickson, um, uh, what's his name, Levine, and then Mendoza. I think Jack, mm-hmm. Spur- maybe, maybe Jack Sperling, and then I forget the, the um, pardon me, I'm forgetting the uh, bungle player's first name, but his last name is Mendoza. And yeah. if you listen to those fours, you listen to the dance that Sammy does, with all due respect to all those drummers, not one of them could match his swing. It was just incredible. Mm-hmm. Incredible. In friggin' incredible. And so when I had the opportunity all those years to play with Sammy for eight years, I was his last drummer. Uh, one of the epiphanies that I had was when we did two weeks with Jerry Lewis. It had nothing to do with Jerry. It had to do with three tap dancers that were on it. And, and, and a lot of people have probably heard this before because it's, it's a story that I've told many times, but it's such an important part of my development. Well, we had Sam Men, Sam's, Arthur Duncan, Bunny Briggs, and then one night Greg behind uh, appear on stage. But for two weeks, we had the, the first three gentlemen. And each night, they would come out, and they would dance to cute. Mm-hmm. And each and their styles were all different. And I would just keep time. I wasn't, you know, all I was doing was keeping time. But each night, I would go back to my room and go, man, what was that? that, that? They called them combinations. But what was that combination that that Sandman did, you know, and then I would try to do with the brushes. So mm. it was impossible to do what they were doing with the brushes unless I had I, I had to develop being able to sweep and tap and get in and out of those things and roll quickly. You know, there was no stopping and going. It had to be fluid. So I ended up developing brush rudiments for myself, you know, like the 
the paraswivel, which is based on a, a paradiddle, but instead of a diddle, you do two sweeps. So that was the first mm-hmm. rudiment that I developed for myself. And so that enabled me to, to, to emulate those guys, just coming up with the different rudiments, because I had to, because you had to, I had to develop a muscle memory of quickly getting in and out of those sounds. And those combinations, and all those guys swung, and they swung in different ways. Bunny Briggs had this rapid-fire tap, but it would still be swinging. Arthur Duncan was real acrobatic and would, you know, do things sort of toes and heels, you know. Sandman Sims would slip and slide his rhythm, and Sammy Davis Jr. could do all of that. I mean, he was, in, he was just thinking incredible. So, so for two weeks, I watched those guys every night. And the only reason that I became unique, if you will, with brushes is because of those two weeks. Only because I was so interested in what they were doing and how they swung. It's it's just incredible. And, you know, know, to this day, uh, those are probably two of the most important weeks of my life working on that show because of Sammy and and the dancers. Yeah, incredible, incredible. And to to this day, it it still stands. I mean, you... You know, if you, you hear that stuff, you just go, wow, it's just right. There's no, you know, you don't change a Monet, a Manet. You know, you don't, you don't do it. It's just right, you know. A Picasso, mm-hmm. it's just right. There's nothing you can do. You can do other things, you know. You can do other styles, but there's no improvement on that, you know. Right, it was, right. It was just right. It was just so incredible. So I have your, uh, your brush book. And uh-huh. you, you said you said something right away. So it, it's almost like those two weeks were the impetus for the entire the multimedia and the whole book because you have a lot of your rudiments in that book that you mentioned. Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, that book would come years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the only reason that I did the book is because I finally came up with, with a mantra that said uh, that says the way you create rhythm when sweeping is by changing direction. And therefore, each direction change is going to equal some sort of note. And so once I came up with that mantra, then I was able to create the language for the book. But prior to that, you know, I was not going to do a brush book because I I felt that uh, all the brush books, and all due respect to all the artists that have ever done them, uh, the brush books don't really do them justice uh, because... Mm -hmm. The, because the codification is, is, um, does not match what the sound is that they're doing. So in other words, if you see all these circles drawn under a quarter note, if you actually play a quarter note, uh, I'm excuse me, if you actually play a circle on a drum using a brush, it's going to sound like a triplet. So you're hearing mm-hmm. a triplet and you see a quarter note. So they don't match. You know, so that's, Perfect. You know, yeah, so that's that's the that's the issue, you know, that I have, um, and it's not it has nothing to do with the artist. It has to do with the codification in the books. No, that, that's exactly right because you know I'm digging into the book as much as I can, you know, going back and trying to get some of those patterns you laid down, and mm-hmm. I use it with all my students that want to get into brushes. I'm like, because um, what I like about the book is if they've done traditional snare drum books and drum set books your book speaks the same language and it makes sense when you're looking at the image and then playing it. Like you can right. see the sound or vice versa, which is really great, which is what I love about it. Right, right. Good. Thank you. Thank you. 
If I happen to have your iPod here, what might I see on your most recently played list? Like, is there anything that might surprise some of my listeners? Like, wow, Clayton listens to that? Or, you know, so what uh, might be up there in your top ten list? You know, um, wow. You might... You know, I love John Bonham. I love... Uh... Well, you know, I, one of my buddies, I love uh, his his new record. Uh, uh, it's not even out yet, but Billy Childs. Mm. Uh, that might not be a surprise. He's a great artist. Um, I really like a lot of vocal stuff, too. Like, you know, just artists that can really sing. Like like some Katie Lang might be, because I work with Katie a little bit. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the way she sings. And, you know, not to mention other, you know, great vocalists. But that that would be like a surprise, you know, you know. Right, right. Uh, you know, that would be a, a, a surprise. Um, what else? Uh, I don't think it would be any surprise that you know I like classical music. I mean, I, I played it all throughout college. Didn't mm-hmm. do much of it afterwards, but uh, you know, who doesn't like you know Stravinsky and Rite of Spring? You know. Right. <laughs> Are some are some Ravel or Debussy every now and then, so you know all all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean that's. I think those will be the surprises, though. That that you know that that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So when just to go back, you did mention college there. Uh, did you play uh, symphonic percussion like uh, xylophone, marimba, and timpani at some point? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, so. I graduated with a BA in music uh, performance from Cal State University Northridge. And I studied with uh, Karen Irvin. Um, uh, may she rest in peace. Uh, with Karen Irvin uh, for four years, and uh, so yeah, so I was very much into classical per- percussion. In fact, uh, I don't think I didn't play in any of the jazz bands there. I don't think I was really, uh, you know, it was really hard for me to focus on because I wasn't as advanced as some. Uh, I was. It was kind of like I knew I had enough information to get me in trouble. And so, uh, though I was playing on the, you know, I was playing on the outside, but, you know, there was kind of a different criteria, I don't know, whatever, in college to get in the band and all that. So, but that wasn't my, because I was playing so much on the outside um, of of school, you know, I didn't really, you know, I I think I auditioned maybe the first two years, and then after I didn't get in, I I didn't bother anymore. And I could focus on on the symphonic. But... At the same time, while I was in school, I, you know, I ended up recording with uh, Gerald Wilson Big Band um, while I was there, and uh, so that was a, you know, with, and Paul Humphrey was the other drummer on it, and he had all these L.A. greats, you know, like Ernie Watts on there, some names wow. I don't know, like Bobby Bryant, who, who was a great lead trumpet player at that time, and, uh, you know, Gerald Wiggins on piano, uh, um, uh, John B. Williams on bass. He used to be on the Arsenio Hall show, played with Nancy Wilson mm-hmm. and, and all that. So, yeah, I mean, I was the rookie. Uh, and, but, you know, Gerald Wilson believed in me, um, and uh, he hired me to play his, his record. And so I, I did that. And so I was playing on the outside. And so I think a lot of guys didn't even know that I even, at some point, didn't really realize that I could play drum set. <laughs> you know, so but you know, it's kinda like, you know, I, I teach now at UCLA and I get it. So sometimes, you know, there are little things that 
you see determination in people. Maybe they, you know, they haven't had as much time or experience or teachers or whatever. And, uh, but, you know, there's definitely, you know, you can see that if they really stick with it, they could really be something. They could really develop. But, but what's not apparent are the, the, the variables and the, um, um, you know, those things that you can't really see, you know, people's experience and, you know, who they may come across and what, you know, what their milieu is, you know, what, you know, what's around them. And so I think for me that it just took a little longer for it to all come together, if you will. And uh, so, you know, so I have no hard feelings, oh, I didn't play in a jazz band or anything like that, but I know that all that stuff really, really helped me. For instance, I mean, I don't, I don't, I hardly ever play vibes or marimba anymore, but I use the, I use the muscle grip to play four sticks on the drum set. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, so, and I've done some recordings that way. I mean, you wouldn't know it, but, you know, I, I've done uh, probably the most notable that I know is I did, uh, we did a recording, I did a recording with Tony Bennett uh, called uh, Hot and Cool, a tribute to uh, Duke Ellington. And so we got Lynn Marcellus in the band, you know, all these great cats in the orchestra, and we do Caravan. And so uh, it was done in New York. <laughs> and so... Uh, you know, so I said, oh, this would be a perfect tune for that, you know, to, to do that, to, you know, get that sound, because the sound is so different. And so, you know, so I did the muscle grip, you know, if you will, on, on Caravan, on that, on that recording. And, uh, and I remember one artist came up to me and said, what are you doing playing full sticks on the drum, you know, just, you know, jokingly. And it was yeah. a great, great sound. So all that stuff, you know, comes into play. You know, I don't take anything for granted. My, my, I think my college days are great, uh, you know, and, and, you know, everything that I learned. And, uh, uh, and like I said, you know, as a teacher, as a professor at UCLA, you know, I see, I tell the kids all the time, you know, young, these young adults, when they come in, they say, look, man, you know, you got you to gotta figure out how to manage yourself, how to manage your time, because that's the most difficult thing for a musician is you're playing all these multiple instruments and trying to really, really get the time in to do your studies and the time in to get your practice. Because you can kind of, you can cram maybe on a test, but you can't cram when you got to perform. Because mm-hmm. if you can't do it, you can't do it, you know. So, so you know, so there's a lot of challenges that way. But so, you know, I, I just feel that everything can, you know, start coming together. You, you know, hopefully you're, you have a long career and you just get better and better. And that's what I think I'm doing now. So, you know. Great, it's really interesting. Your TED talk you did—I've watched that a few times. That was that was brilliant. I, I love that oh, stuff. thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, is, uh, which one did you see? Um, I think I saw two of them. There was one about math. Yes, yes, okay, yeah, arithmetic. Yep. Yeah, that one was really popular. Yep. Um, I had no idea. Uh, the TED talk people called me after I had done one before, where I kind of give a history of jazz drumming in America. And right. um, and so then they called and said, hey, can you do something for kids? You know, uh, there's going to be a bunch of high school kids and you know, middle school kids. Can you do something for them? So I was like, okay. Uh, so <laughs> I flew to New Orleans, and I came up with the concept uh, the night before. <laughs> really? And, yeah. I mean, I had kind of done, you know, it was always in the back of my mind, you know, something that I kind of you know, expressed before. Um, in fact, I think I did it, the first time I ever did something like that was Tony Bennett on a MT, when MTV was in its infancy, 
uh, and, uh, you know, we were playing, uh, well, not in its infancy. This was in the 90s. MTV's more like 80s, but, um, you know, John Stewart's show was happening. So I think we were doing some stuff in the early 90s, and, and we were doing something with some kids, and Tony Bennett turned to me and said, hey, Clayton, can you tell the kids something about music? And so I think I did that kind of like the same thing, but very, very condensed, you know. Uh, you know, just a little math and music. In fact, now, you know, I'm, I'm at UCLA. I've been there 10 years. And so I have a class now that uh, UCLA has accepted, and I'll be teaching hopefully in the winter. And I call it, um, um, <clears throat> excuse me, call it rhythmic theory, uh, as in harmonic theory, but this is rhythmic theory. And, uh, and it's kind of, it's based on my TED talk, but much more expansive. And uh, so I'm really excited about that, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Wow, I, I wish I lived closer. I'd take it. <laughs> I'm all the way out here. <laughs> Sounds fun. Yeah, no, I, yeah I'm, I'm excited about it. It's, it's, uh, and t- just in a nutshell, it, it's basically, you know, there's so much theory and emphasis put on, on harmony, which it should be. Uh, but what I, what I find over the years and so on, what I've read in different books and whatnot, uh, they don't really give rhythm a whole lot of credit. However, you know, what really struck me is one time I was in a, a, kids, a kids' museum, children's museum here, or science center here in, in Los Angeles area, in Santa Ana. And uh, they have a, what they call a, a seismograph, the cylinder is a seismograph, and it's, it's, uh, it has a little metal floor that vibrates. And the children are invited to put their hands inside of it and mix the sand up that's uh, inside the cylinder. And so, you know, so about six kids could probably sit around it, you know, and it's hot, just, just high enough for, you know, for them to reach over and, and mess up the sand. And what happens is the algorithm, the vibration, the pulse that is fed and that is vibrating the floor causes the sand to go right back into the same shape. So you can mess it up all you want, but the sand ends up going back to the same shape. And if you hmm. change the algorithm, it'll go to another shape. So I started thinking about that in terms of, of rhythm and, and rhythmic cycles. Um, one of the, the most used rhythmic cycles is a cycle of three, you know, uh, one, mm-hmm. two, three, four, bang, two, bang, dong, two, dang, 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 dong, two, dang, one, you know, if you're in four. You know, so everything from a bossa nova to, you know, to clave to a second line beat to a big band figures, you know, you hear this sort of thing. But then what happens if you play a different cycle? That feels a different way. You know, so all these different uh, things are not arbitrary, just like the algorithm on a seismograph. So by, by really honing in, like if you're really trying to play some jazz, if you look at Riley's book, even though it's not emphasized, most of the stuff is based on cycle of three. And mm. so that's what, that's what my class is about. And not just about jazz, but just music, period. You know, it, you know, not to say, oh, this is that, this is that. No, let's listen to that, and what do you hear? Well, you might hear a cycle of things. You might hear, you know, a cycle of five. You might hear, uh, you know, seven or, or whatever it is. And it has a certain feel to it. And, you know, depending on the tempo, you know, that also contributes to it. And we're not even talking about meter. We're just talking about whatever the pulse is, you know. So, um, so anyway, so I'm excited about it. it I'm, that's kind of it in a nutshell, but um, it, but it's it, it's uh, a lot to it. I'm excited about getting ready for it. 
Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, I hope it really. I hope it goes well. It's awesome. Thank you. Is there anything you like to do outside of music? Do you have time to do anything outside of music? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I make the I make the time. I'm uh, what I like to do. I mean, I I like to write music. Uh, of course, I like to perform. Uh, those are two things that I, I really like to do. And then outside of music. I'm a, a tennis player, so I mean, like, I love to watch tennis, I love to play tennis, you know, uh, so I, I, I try to get in, you know, some tennis at least, you know, a couple of times a week, that that sort of thing, and, uh, you know, it's a good exercise, and it reminds me of playing drums, because it's like, you can't, you can't just go out on a tennis court and it's, you can play. <laughs> you you, right. you can't. You know, it's just like you can't just you know. Yeah, you know, maybe you know someone who's talented could get a groove right away. But when we're talking about really playing some drums and you know having you know some versatility on the instrument and all that, you you you're just not going to walk up and just start doing it. You know, so mm-hmm. uh, so that I think that's why I really liked it a lot. You know, like you know I started taking lessons years ago, and this is a completely different story. But my one of my first teachers was Andre Agassi's dad, Mike Agassi. Really. Yeah, and uh, just, you know, just because why? I worked in Las Vegas with Sammy Davis Sr., and he was the maitre d' at the hotel. <laughs> he was the really? maitre d' in the showroom. Yeah, he was the maitre d' in the showroom. And, <laughs> and I was in the celebrity room, and uh, I happened to see Andre Agassi play tennis when he was 15, and then someone told me this kid's dad, he wasn't famous at the time, and then someone said, hey, well, his dad works where you are. And I said, oh, really, I'll go say hi. So I went over to Mike Agassi and I said, hey, you know, I saw your son play tennis today. It was incredible. He goes, oh, you saw Andre play? And I said, yeah, he's great. And so then uh, he said, well, you know, what are you doing uh, tomorrow morning? I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm off until I work at night like you. The man was so gracious. He took me over, picked me up every day that week and taught me how to hit a forehand. And, and that's how I started playing tennis. <laughs> it doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> No, that was, that was it. I mean, you know, so I can, you know, I can just, you know, I can just look back on those moments and go, okay, yeah, what did Mike tell me, you know? So, uh, <laughs> so anyway. But, but, you know, so I've been very blessed in many ways, you know, but I love to play tennis to answer your question, you know, outside of that. And, uh, you know, my son and I also have a, you know, thing for cars. So whatever car show we can go to, we do. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Well, uh, to tie it all together, you talked about your college experience. I'll just tell you about mine real quick. When I was an undergrad in college, I saw you on MTV Unplugged with Tony Bennett. And that was a pivotal moment in my career as a musician, I think, because he introduced you, you came out, and you destroyed the snare drum, and you know, you went crazy with the brushes, and it totally changed my approach to playing uh, drum set. So, wow. Yeah, it was like I had played drum set, and I... I think what had happened, I had done everything. I was like, was I an orchestral musician? Was I a drum set player? Was I into marching arts? You know, but I saw that and it was like something went off in my head and I'm like, that's the real deal. I have to get more into that. So I, I bought, I think, I think the day after that, I went out and bought Sinatra's The Capital Years. Then I started getting Sammy stuff, Tony stuff, all the, you know, American songbook singers. Wow. And... Yeah, and I got I got brushes, and I really got into it and stuff, and I started uh, paying attention more, and it really opened up a lot of opportunities for me because I started auditioning for different groups, 
And they're like, what do you listen to, man? Like, because no one else is coming in there playing brushes. And I'm like, oh, I, this is the stuff I like to listen to. So I just wanted to take a minute and thank you for um, all the inspiration you gave me, uh, starting back oh, in the wow. 90s through now. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, those were, those were some good days for me, too. Uh, and, you know, and I had already, you know, played with, you know, Sammy, who I consider my greatest boss ever, and got to work with Sinatra and Dean Martin, those guys, and some other great artists as well. Uh, and then Tony was kind of like, you know, for me, I had already, I already, you know, got my degree in show business, if you will, mm-hmm. you know. And so now Tony got me after I really learned from, you know, Sammy and you know Joe Williams and all those cats. So you know, so I was a much more developed product, if you will, when I got with Tony and and um, and, uh, but you know, he was such a great artist. And, uh, you know, I did it for 13 years. And, uh, and you know, Tony, when when I left the band, I mean, he said to me, he said, you know, Clayton, I've learned, he says, I've learned so much from you. And I'm like, what? You know, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if he was just being, you know, just totally sweet, which he was. But just for an artist like that, that great to say that he's learned something from someone else, not namely just saying he learned something from me, which I still don't know to this day what it could have been. But, you know, that, uh, he, you know, he appreciated me in that, in that way. So, you know, yeah, so I did that for, for 13 years. And, you know, that was a, a great period amongst other periods in my, in my career. So, you know, so I'm really thankful. If I only had that one, I would have been thankful. But, you know, I had, you know, it's just such a great experience even, you know, years before that. So, so uh, yeah, so that Tony Bennett stuff was really great. And it was just timely. It was just one of those things that, Everything came together. I mean, his career, he had been, uh, you know, he had been doing gigs, you know, what they call, uh, uh, you know, those conventions and all that kind of stuff. You know, his career had been, you know, waning, if you will. And then, you know, suddenly we do the recording of Stepping Out, um, and that becomes like this huge hit. I mean, he had done the tribute to Swing Sinatra before that, but once we recorded Stepping Out, you know, that was the first record I did with him on the 13 records. I did with them. Um, it was incredible, you know. So that MTV came shortly after that, and uh, you know, and it's just another gig in a way. We're saying, okay, what are we doing? Oh, we're going to go over to uh, you know studio. We're going to you know play in front of a live audience for MTV. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> You know, who knew? You know, that right. would become exactly, that, and that that performance would become album of the year that year. Yeah, I, was, I'm holding the was, CD right here. I have it on my shelf. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, nineteen, you know, nineteen ninety four, I think. Yeah, that's um, what it says. Yeah, nineteen ninety four, and that became album of the year, which was crazy. It was like, what? You know, I mean, not crazy <laughs> that it wasn't, you know, you know, but it was up against so much other stuff. I forget what was up at that year, but it was just like crazy. And do you not know that the Academy, you know, they created a, a review board for album of the year after that because the record companies were so up in arms that Tony won. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah, they were. So they created a board, <laughs> a review board of the voting for album of the year, which is crazy. You know. <laughs> anyway, anyway, that's policy. Wow. Yep, exactly. But, but that was a great experience, and I'm, I'm glad you checked it out and had an influence on you. I mean, that's, that's, that's fantastic. Yep, it was a pivotal moment in my looking back on my career. So thank you, and uh, thanks for taking the time and always making yourself available uh, when we're near each other to talk for a little bit and for answering my questions on this podcast, Clayton. 
You got it. No problem, Sean. Okay, thanks. I'll talk to you later. All right. You take care. Today's soundtrack was provided by Clayton Cameron and the Jazz Explosion from their CD called Here's to the Messengers, a tribute to Art Blakey. The link is below the podcast so you can pick up a copy for yourself. I've also provided links so you can check out Clayton's book called Brushworks, a new language for mastering the brushes, available at Carl Fisher Music. I provided links to Clayton's TED Talks, his page at UCLA, and his website. So check him out, and thanks for listening.